For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, Bodhisattvas. It's wonderful to see everyone here and everyone online. And uh, it's wonderful to be here on this very warm morning in Chicago, but we are starting to get some rain, which we really, really need. I am, uh, well, I think everybody knows already. I'm Asian Nancy Easton, I and I wanted to talk to everybody today about a koan. It's uh, case 16 from the Mumon Khan, or the Gateless Gate, which is a collection of 40 koans um, compiled by women. This one is the number 16, the sound of the bell and the seven panel robe. It features someone that you may have heard of before, Yun Men. Um, and you may know Yun Men from the koan in which a monk asks him, what is the practice of Buddhism ancestors? And Yun Men answers an appropriate response. So can everybody online hear me? Anybody? Thumbs up. Thank you. Um, and everybody here, I'm assuming, can hear me or you would have said something by now. Um, so you men lived from about 864 in the Common Era to 949. I think he was maybe around 85 or 86 when he passed away. And he founded actually the Yunmen School of Chan in China, which later became part of the Linji or Rinzai School during the Song Dynasty. And Yunmen was, I think, known for being pretty direct. And as far as I can tell, not a man of many words. So he was, you know, he was very succinct. And this case, as I mentioned a moment ago, is very succinct. In this case, it's just two sentences, and it goes, Yunmen said, the world is vast and wide. Why do you put on your seven-piece robe at the sound of the bell? So for anyone who missed it, I will repeat, the world is, Yunmen said, the world is vast and wide. Why do you put on your seven-piece robe at the sound of the bell? So... I'm, I'm wearing a seven-piece robe. This is the, it's, the seven-piece robe um, formally refers to the kesa, or, or kesa, which I'm wearing, which is made of seven um, joes, or pieces, each, each pan, or panel, um, each one made of, oh gosh, I think it's one long and two short pieces. Might be the other way around. Um, last week, we... Um, had a, had a Jukai ceremony for three members of our Sangha who received their rakasus, which are five-piece robes, small, you know, five-piece five robes. And I see that David Ray is probably wearing his today. And, uh, but it's okay. Whether you wear an okesa or whether you wear a rakasu or whether you do not wear a robe, this koan includes everybody because the, the robe is really just a metaphor for practice. So I think what this koan is saying is, you know, why do we practice? You know, if the world is vast and wide, 
Why do we practice? And this is a question that you can ask yourself, you know, um, and maybe sometimes you do ask yourself. I know when I first started to practice, I started and I stopped many, many times because I, I just started to feel like, why am I doing this? You know, when I, well, I could be out, you know, riding my bike or, um, you know, going to work or, or something. So, so I think it's an important question. And it's a question that has brought everyone here, whether it's for your first time or if you've been here many, many times. Why do we practice? So there are some themes in this con that I want to talk about today. Um, and the first one is freedom. The concept of freedom, you know, the first line seems to imply freedom. You know, the world is vast and wide. We have all these possibilities. We've got so much freedom. You know, why would we restrict ourselves to sitting down in a, you know, position that is, you know, maybe starts off comfortable, but later on doesn't feel so comfortable. And, we, you know, just look at a wall. Why would we restrict ourselves in this way? Um. And thinking about this brings to mind a quote from Suzuki Roshi, where he talks about, you know, awakening. And awakening really is just our ordinary life. You know, that's, that's another koan, ordinary mind is the way. So awakening is just our ordinary life. But sometimes we need a frame to see it more clearly. And zazen, or practice, helps to provide that frame. You know, as you sit here on your cushion, all kinds of things may pass through your awareness and, and hopefully, you know, pass all the way through your awareness. And it's just your ordinary life. But, but when we're not practicing, or, you know, when we do practice, maybe is a better, better way to say it, it allows us to see, you know, what am I about? Oh, you know, I didn't realize I felt that way, or I didn't realize I had that thought. Um, I thought I was maybe a different kind of person. We become, you know, intimately familiar with ourselves and with, with everything. So, so are we, are we free? Does that mean we're free when we're practicing? You know, even though, how could, how could we be free when we have these limitations? You know, that's, that's maybe another question to ask yourself. In what way maybe are we free when we are practicing and limiting our field. Um, and then you can ask yourself, you know, are, are we, on the other hand, free when we have unlimited choices? You know, I went to art school for a couple of years and my art teacher, my first art teacher taught us the kind of the fundamentals, told us that actually having carte blanche is one of the hardest things for an artist because it's, it, you just you lose yourself in all the things, you know, and all the possibilities that you could do. And so it helps to have some structure, you know, or some limitations to help guide you. We, we can get really get lost. And I think that this, I've, I've had so many opportunities to see how that has been true in my life. But I think, um, you know, maybe you can relate to this because I think especially those of us who live as householders, you know, we're faced with seemingly endless choices every day. You know, what, what to eat or what to wear or what to, when to wake up, you know, what to do with your time, who to associate with, um, 
you know, how to live. I remember that the first time I went to an extended session, I went to a, a five-day session that was in a remote location and there was, you know, nothing to do except be there in the session. There was no real escaping. And I found that, um, you know, around day maybe three, my hunger cues went away because, and, and I, and I was just really struck by how I wasn't being, I didn't have to make any choices about what to eat. I wasn't being, um, you know, bombarded with advertising messages. I wasn't being bombarded with, um, you know, people, people eating around me and, or, or the ordinary things that might signal, Hey, it's time to take a coffee break. You know, none of that was there. And my, and my cues for when I was hungry really, you know, diminished significantly. So we, so I, so I, so I realized some freedom through that process. And, uh, and, I, and I found that to be you know, really refreshing because if we're, if we're honest with ourselves and we take a close look, you know, we can see that our daily lives are really subject to greed, hate, and delusion. You know, we're all day long, we are making choices based on, you know, I want this, but not that. I'm going to do this and not that. And we tend to set our lives up according to our preferences. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That is, that is part of being alive. Um, and and we, we kind of have to do it. But it's, it's, less, it's a way of living that's less likely to lead to awakening. You know, practice, practice makes us more prone to waking up. Um, and when we're, when we're setting up our lives according to our own preferences, we start to experience ourselves as, um, you know, the center of everything and, and maybe even come to believe that. Or we, we start to believe that, you know, things are the way I think they are, because why would they be any other way? And it's, you know, while it is true that we are in, in one way it's true that we are the center it's also not true we're we're not the center we're we're part of something faster and, and larger and uh and i think the verse for this koan kind of illustrates that so the verse you know each each koan has the case and a verse and some commentary and the, the verse for this one is with realization all things are of one family Without realization, everything is separate and different. He goes on to say, without realization, all things are of one family. With realization, everything is separate and different. So, so things are both all of one family and not all of one family. Things are both separate and different and not separate and different. And it is our own, you know, we, as Dogen would say, we... we see only as far as our eye of practice can reach. We, we practice with this so that we can discern, you know, whether we are in the center or whether we're part of the background. You know, there are times we, we shift constantly between both. Things are all of one family and thing, everything is separate and different. That's 
moving back and forth between the absolute or ultimate and the relative or phenomenal world. So, you know, when we, when we carry ourselves forward and focus on the vast wide world outside of ourselves, we can really become caught up in mistaking our views and our preferences for the world. We, one of the things that I think um, I've really become attuned to, and I think the world has become attuned to in maybe especially the past 10 years, is how through embracing multiculturalism, we get to see a wider view of the world. And we get, and we've, and we've become maybe more um, conscious of how our experience has shaped us to see things as, as one particular thing. And someone else's experience has shaped us, them to see things as very different. And so including many different views really helps us to get a, a clearer sense of the world and our place in it. Um, we have a, um, you know, kind of a Eurocentric or, or white-centric history of, especially in this country that we've been taught. But there is a very valid Afrocentric history that most, you know, sort of people in the dominant culture have, have not been taught, that, that we are starting to learn more about. And I think that that's, you know, part of understanding more about the vast wide world. So when we are able to take that backward step and turn the light inward and, and practice within ourselves, it becomes much clearer that we are only part of the vast wide world. So, so practice is important, I guess. And I, and I, I think, uh, you know, that's, that's for sure preaching to the choir because you're all here. You all, you all know that this is important. But there's one more thing that I want to touch on, which is, do we practice when we feel like it? I mean, in reality, you know, that may very well be true, but not in this, not in this koan. You know, in this koan, we are practicing when the bell rings. This is not something that's in our control, you know, or subject to our preferences. We're... we're this is one that we're, we're letting go of that preference and bringing ourselves here or wherever you may be in your practice space to practice. And that's another, that's another piece of discipline that I think as householders we can really struggle with. Um, but it's kind of one of the built-in benefits of residential or monastic practice is that there's a schedule and you do your best to harmonize your own personal needs and wants with that schedule. Um, and you learn to let go of some of your personal preferences. I think that, um, you know, many of us like the idea of practice, but we don't really necessarily want renunciation, you know, we, but of that kind. We want to be, we still want to be free to pick and choose. And, and I think that I, When you, when you begin to impose something like, you know, I'm going to practice at 7 a.m. every day on yourself, you become almost immediately familiar with that side that says, 
I don't want to, I want to go like, you know, <laughs> do something. I, I need coffee or, you know, something. And so, so it's, it's good to get familiar with that aspect of your life. We all can feel like, Hey, no, I'm in the middle of something. I want to, I, I want to continue doing that. And I'll, I'll, I'll practice when, when I'm done with that. There's a, even, um, Tygen's teacher, my Dharma grandfather, Rabbi Anderson, um, talks about this in the wonderful book, Being Upright, which is on the Zen precepts. Um, he has a wonderful example, which I'll read to you. And he says, uh, when I was in my early 40s, I studied at a monastery in the countryside of southern Minnesota. There, I practiced with an excellent yet rather frail and elderly teacher named Narasaka Iko, Narasaki Iko Roshi. Although I was young and strong and could walk, walk much more quickly than he, I noticed that he almost always got to the meditation hall first. As I watched more closely, I saw that he was able to do this, even though he walked to the hall more slowly than I did, and my housing was no farther away than his. As I watched even more closely, I noticed that the key factor was that he left before I did. As a matter of fact, he left just as the bell sounded. Then I watched to see how it was that I didn't leave just as the bell sounded. I noticed that I was usually in the middle of some activity and that I didn't immediately give it up. I discovered how my greed was preventing me from keeping up with the frail and elderly monk. Once I gave up whatever I was involved in, as soon as I heard the bell, I would naturally arrive at the meditation hall before the old teacher, which is the appropriate order of arrival. So even in a monastery setting, people can struggle with this, but it's a wonderful opportunity to, you know, learn more about what, what is it that I'm doing and, and maybe think about, consider, you know, am I, am I doing that in other areas of my life? Is there, you know, is there some other part of my life where, um, you know, I'm carrying myself forward? I think, that, you know, getting up immediately when the bell rings is a wonderful example of renunciation. We renounce our preferences, and in the process, we renounce the delusion that we're separate from the world. We are not in control in this moment. In our daily lives, as, as lay people or householders or, you know, in any case, non-residential practitioners. <clears throat> I think we tend to move back and forth, actually, between realms in which we are in control and realms in which we're not in control. For example, um, on a typical morning, you know, maybe your, your alarm rings at, at some unfortunate time. <laughs> and, you know, maybe you, maybe you hit snooze, you know, once or twice, but eventually you get up. And you eat something, which is something that's probably of your choosing, um, something that you probably hopefully like. You get dressed, generally in something that you want to wear, and you go to work. So you, you have control over, you know, what you eat and what you wear. You don't have as much control over the fact that you have to go to work or the fact that you have to get up. Um, we, we move back and forth, and I think it's, it's sometimes valuable to take a look at, um, you know, what's driving that? 
what <clears throat> um, what drives your life. I think I've noticed that my life revolves inordinately, maybe around work and you know finding the next thing that I have to be doing. And part of that is choice, and part of that's not choice. But but it's but it's worth looking at, and it's it's something that you may discover through practice. Um, but similarly, this this actually this does apply to our practice lives as well, um, not just our you know secular daily life, um, but in the life of practice. I think we all need to discern how much is appropriate for us to renounce at any given time. You know, if you if you let go too fast, it may lead to the opposite reaction. And I think that's what happened. I think that's what happened to me over and over and over again when I started to practice was I had these ideas about like what's the right way to do this and I'm gonna do it right. And um, it led to me over and over and over again saying, this is stupid. I'm not gonna do this. Um, and and quitting or or running away and it took me many many episodes of that to come to a place where I could renounce you know the right amount and I could practice in a way that felt more sustainable um, and I think during our we we just we also recently finished a practice commitment period and I think that during that time we all had the opportunity to set some intentions and some vows for practice that maybe are ones that you want to carry over, but maybe also felt like, and you know what, that's a little too much for me right now. And that's, that is okay. You know, that's, that's okay. It's, it, it really is a process. It's okay not to let go until you're ready. Once you have even I think experience, you know, the, the wish to practice or the thought of practice or the idea of practice, it just lives in you, you know, and it and it and as you do a little bit more, it does, it does, you know, it, it does us, as, as Tiger likes to say, Zazen does us and practice does us. We don't have to force it. It, it you know, I think monasteries are set up to help individuals, you know, they, to help support people with the work of renunciation until it becomes a part of us. But this can also really be part of the practice of sangha, you know, as we support each other with our practice or with our other life's challenges until it becomes more a part of us. You know, we encourage each other until the pain of holding on becomes harder than the pain of letting go. You know, both are both have a little bit of, of pain to them, but but in letting go we can you know find some freedom, freedom from holding on. And as we let go of our maybe sort of self-focused or self-centered ideas and ways of living and preferences, we actually become more available to hear the cries of the world and to respond appropriately. You know, as, so I think so. I think young men would be very happy with us coming to support each other to practice gradually. So the world is vast and wide, and you can ask yourself, you know, why 
do you practice at the sound of the bell? So I want to, that's mostly what I want to say today, but I want to close my talk by talking a little bit about my mom, um, whose name is on the altar today. We're going to be doing a memorial dedication for my mom today. And she, my mom passed away a year ago next Sunday. Um, but I, I just hadn't felt, I, the, the time was not right for me to do a memorial dedication for her. So I've, I've been wanting to do one. But I wanted to wait till I was giving the talk. Um, and actually, thinking about my mom really inspired this talk. And, and Tygen helped me with a koan that, that fits, fits this topic. So to give you a little background, my, my mom and I didn't always see eye to eye, especially when I was younger, maybe especially, you know, 30, 35 years ago. And um, my, but, and then that was actually also before I really started practicing. My mom credits Zen and practice with turning me into a tolerable person. <laughs> and she, you know, she's not wrong. I, I really could be pretty harsh. Um, and I still, I still can be harsh at times um, without, without really meaning to. But uh, the thing that I wanted to tell you about my mom um, is that she, my mom suffered from congestive heart failure and atrial fibrillation for probably the last 10 or 12 years of her life. And my siblings apparently didn't know this, um, but I knew it because I, I kind of pulled it out of her one time. Um, and because she would, you know, would talk on the phone and she would tell me about, um, you know, various symptoms or medical problems that she was having. And I would, you know, kind of try to give her advice or tell her what she should do. And, and it was, it was always wrong. And, or she'd leave out a piece and I'd be like, mom, that doesn't make any sense. You know, what, what's going on? And, and I, cause I, cause I could tell that she was just leaving something out and she did ultimately tell me it, it slipped out that, that that was what was going on. And, um, but I realized I think maybe in that moment that she didn't really want to tell me, she didn't really want to talk about it. And I eventually learned that I was really going about these conversations wrong and in a way that was just upsetting her more. Um, and what I learned to do was to just listen and empathize and let her tell me what she wanted to tell me about that. And so, um, you know, so I, so there was a lot of, I just, I just ended up not really knowing. Um, and so when people ask me, you know, like when my mom passed, people would say, oh, you know, was it sudden? Was it, was it, you know, some, something that you had an idea was happening? I, I really don't know what to say because um, to me, I thought that, you know, maybe things were, were progressing a little bit more, but she really didn't want to talk about it. She didn't say, and um so I was, uh, I had, I was really kind of blindsided. My sister happened to be visiting my parents the weekend that, that my mom passed away. And um, she had just gotten off the phone with me, you know, telling me about how, well, you know, I think mom's doing better. She's, she's, she had had 
a, a fall and she was she wasn't feeling well but she was recovering and uh i went you know had this 15 minute phone conversation with my sister about oh, no, i think she's she's gotta do you know she's got some a ways to go but she's gotta do some stuff and then like Two hours later, I get this text from my sister saying, um, we're going to the emergency room. Mom doesn't feel well. She, you know, I guess she waited until, you know, after dinner and said, no, I think I think I need to go to the emergency room. And so they went to the emergency room. I didn't, my, my mom and my sister and my dad, and I didn't really know what was happening. It turns out that my mom had developed a septic infection and, um, they didn't find this out for quite some time because they were trying to figure out what was going on. And I was used to this. It was very complicated. But um, my mom had had spent her career as a nurse in a nursing home. And she had very clear ideas about how she wanted to live and how she wanted to die and what she wanted her old age to be like. And one of the things she impressed on us was that she wanted to be, to have a, she had a DNR in place, a do not resuscitate order. And she impressed this on us. She impressed upon us that she did not want any heroic measures to be taken. And um, she made sure we knew it. And so in this hospital scenario, they said the I think the doctors told my my mom and my dad and sister that you know okay well you know we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to you know, intubate her and we'll give her a central line or something and, and my mom said no no I'm sorry no that's that's not what's going to happen and um, I think my my sister and my dad were taken aback but my mom just was very you know she had her full awareness. She had her wits around her and she just said, no, that's, that's not what we're going to do here. I, I don't want that. And so she prepared herself to die. And uh, my sister said to her, um, at that point, she said, mom, you're so brave. And what my mom said to her was, when it's your time, you'll understand. And I think that this has everything to do with you know, when the bell sounds, we practice. And so my, I, even before I could even get on a plane, you know, six hours later, my mom was gone. Um, but she had my dad and my sister to support her. And they had, um, you know, the, the hospital staff to support them. And that was their practice for the next six hours was how do we, how do we support this happening? And it's really left me and my family, I think, with such a such an example, you know, of and such a such a teaching for me of, you know, how do you live? You live, you live fully and you you embrace your life. And then when 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 it's time to go, you go. And uh, so thank you for listening to my maybe very personal sharing about my mom this morning. It wasn't too much, but uh, I I did want to I did want to share this. My mom was a very special person, and I I miss her. I would be happy to talk though about anything anyone would like to talk about. Um, really, anything at this point, I guess. Um, 
but maybe especially about you know our, our practice and how we how we come to practice and how we how we support each other in our practice and and in our life you know the challenges of our lives Is that oh send you Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Um, the subject that you bring up is, I think, our most important subject. That is how to bring our Zazen practice into our everyday life. And your your example and your your talking of it when the bell rings go is a is a very profound, wonderful way of 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 helping us all see that point. So thank you very much for your talk. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. It's I I wish I well and I look forward to um, our new building where we will be able to put our Han in the vestibule again, which says, you know, life and death is the great matter. Don't waste time. That is the, the Han is is a block of wood with a with a mallet. Oh, well, we have our we have our portable Han, but in um, in temples, it usually has some kind of an inscription about, you know, Life is short, death is certain, we don't, you know, hurry to practice and don't waste time. So, um, life and death is the great matter. That's, that's why we're here. We're here to, and sometimes, sometimes thinking about death helps us to live more fully, you know. So thank you for your appreciation. Hey, Shen, first of all, thank you so much for sharing with us um, about your mother. And I imagine everyone does, but I definitely do relate to what you're saying. My mother also worked in healthcare, and she also kept a medical, she chose to keep a medical condition, her own private secret until she was very closely in her life. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel so much gratitude um, for her and, um, and and I'm grateful to I'm grateful to feel your mother's presence um, in your in your talk. Um, thinking about um, putting on the putting on the robe when the when the bell rings. Um, I'm uh, I'm still new to this Rakusu wearing thing, and it really is bringing up and out for me. So many ways that um, I feel like a disheveled mess in my life. Like, <laughs> um, you know, how to how to do this thing? But it, but it's the rest of life. I mean, as an example, I uh, you know I went to the bathroom during uh, during Kenyan. First, I realized, oh, I'm in the bathroom with my rocky, so I have to go out and put it out. And then I came back in. I realized, oh, right, my rocky suit is still out out there. So when I, when I, and you know. Um, Everything with my rocky suit feels like a kind of disheveled mess, comedy of errors um, at this point. And I realized, wow, that's that's part of the character of my life. And I'm feeling the tension between that and you know, embracing and sustaining all beings. And I'm remembering Zengi saying that, that, the, that the, the essence of the precepts is not to, and that there's really no way to not keep the, 
the precepts. So that's what I'm sitting with. And I, I, anything that you might have to say about that felt tension would be most appreciated. Well, thank you, first of all. I'm, I'm really sorry that you feel like a disheveled mess. Um, but I think maybe the best I can say really is, you know, join the club. Mm. <laughs> you, it sounds like your Rakasu gave you a frame, you know, to see your life. And that's, that's part of sometimes what we experience as pain in practice. You know, we, we see the pain of how we, how we live. Um, and even things that we want to do, you know, can, can bring us pain at times. Um, things, things that are worth doing, you know, are, are hard. And it takes a lot of courage to persist in something when you feel like you're not good at it, you know. But um, maybe that's something to remind yourself. It's that, you know, it takes a lot of, a lot of courage. And um, I think it's also worth, you know, being kind to yourself. It takes... There's a, there's a whole movement in, like, secular meditation um, of self-compassion. And you've probably heard about, you know, the self-compassion movement. And I don't, I don't want to go into it too much. But I think it's, it's worth extending the compassion that you evidently, definitely extend to others, you know, to yourself. That um, as my, psycho, my old psychoanalyst would tell me over and over and over again when I was in analysis, it's a process. It's a process. <laughs> Nothing changes overnight. And it's, it's, it's painful when we're wanting something to change, but, it had, but, it's, but, it's, but it's slow in changing. So, um, you know, the more, the more kindness and generosity you can extend yourself, the easier that time will be. Um, I've walked into a bathroom with my rakasu on <laughs> more than once. <laughs> Probably everyone with a Rakasu has done that. So it's okay. And um, I don't think our lives, though, will ever be less messy or, or not messy, you know, because that's life. We, and that's, that's really the tension between the ultimate and the phenomenal or the absolute and the relative. The Absolute and ultimate are like concepts, you know, and ideals and, and kind of, you know, as, as used to be the slogan for Maine, the way life should be. Um, but life itself is, you know, tangible and multidimensional and nothing fits. That's, that's just the first noble truth is that everything is different. And everything, everything involved, everything is out of whack. You know, everything involves some amount of incompleteness or suffering if we if we are prone to suffering through it. Um, but if you can accept it, it 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 comes alive. You know, just just accepting that. Yeah, there it is again. Dukkha. There I am. Just one, as Dogen would say. You know, like mistake after mistake. Here I am, a big big ball of dukkha with. 
an important intention to be awake and alive. So don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it again. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> Any other imperfect beings wish to uh, enlighten us? Ruben. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> putting that aside <laughs> um, you mentioned a couple times you know, thank you for your talk thank you thank you for, for your attention thank you for sharing thank you got you a for... wonderful encouraging smile on your oh face good the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful uh, I'm, I'm glad you talked I heard you talking about these things in our life that, that, that are, um, we don't have a choice about. I know for me, I struggle a lot with um, this illusion that I don't have a choice about things in my life and how that it, it informs the narrative of victimhood. Um, like, I just really like to hear you talk about, about those, if you have anything to say about that. The illusion... Of choicelessness. Choicelessness? Yeah. Oh. Because, I mean, for me, like, whenever I feel like I don't have a choice, I realize it's, oh, it's be- I feel that way because there's this other thing that's more, that is very important to me. That, that the, the world is huge and wonderful yeah, and beautiful. Yeah. And, and uh, therefore, <laughs> I go to work <laughs> so I can support the parts of the world that are, that are important to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, you're, the idea of choicelessness brings up a lot of associations for me. Um, but one is that sometimes the choice really feels unpalatable, you know, or, or untenable. Um, the choice, well, you know, you could you could give up living in society and paying taxes and, you know, having an income and find some land that you could live off of. Um, but you would lose a lot of things like healthcare and um, maybe protection from anyone who shows up on your land with a gun and wants to take it over. Um, life, life is a, is a lot of trade-offs. Um, but there are also a lot of there are also a lot of I think maybe powerful emotions that drive our choices. So, for me personally, and this may be true for you, anxiety is a big driver of of what I what I do or how I see things. Um, because for years I thought, well, you know, X, Y, and Z, and so of course I'm anxious. It, it never, it took me a long time to realize, oh no, I'm anxious because I have an anxiety disorder. It's the thing is maybe the proximal cause, the, the thing that we're, that we're, you know, identifying is, oh, I have to respond to that. That's, that's just the proximal cause, but it's not necessarily the, the necessary cause. There are, um, there are all kinds of ways we could see something or respond to it. I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I, I can't. Um, but I think that um, 
I think that, you know, what you're saying can relate to things like addictions as well, where we feel compelled to do something, you know, whether it's use a substance or eat something or behave in a certain way. And, um, and you know, in, in recovery, we talk about recognizing that our lives have become unmanageable and we can't continue to try to manage the thing. So, you know, that's, that's a form mm-hmm. of letting go. Letting go and maybe taking a step back from whatever situation it is that feels choiceless to see if maybe another possibility arises. You know, that, that possibility may arise quickly. It may arise slowly. But another possibility might arise if we can, um, you know, take a step back from, from the thing that feels choiceless. I, I have to confess something, which is that I am really struggling with this, exa- this, this situation right now. And it's when I wake up in the morning to help myself wake up, I grab my phone and I start playing the New York Times games. It used to be just the used to be just the mini crossword, but now they've got like a slew of like five or eight things that you can do. And what I really, really want to do, and I'm saying this publicly so that maybe you all can support me, or at least I can feel ashamed when I see you, <laughs> um, is what I really want to be doing is getting up and practicing. I really want to go, you know, get up and go to the go to the zendo. And what I do instead is I sit on well actually I first you know lie there with one eye open doing the thing and then after maybe a half hour of that I get up and I sit on the couch and I do the rest of them um with my cat but I would like to stop doing that and it it feels choiceless but I know it's not choiceless it's I'm 100% making a choice before sometimes we make choices you know before we even realize we're making a choice I'm not even I'm not even awake but I'm making this choice so <laughs> Probably I should um, wake up. <laughs> so, so I don't know. Does that does that respond Great. to? Thank you. Yeah, it's it's hard to find the choice sometimes, but it's there. Thank you, Isha. Yeah, what an idea, Isha. All wake up. I think that's what our intention is in mm-hmm. this practice. But yeah, you, you meant, Ruben, you mentioned victimhood. That struck me. And I think that's an option that many of us can feel. Oh, poor me. <laughs> you know, I, have this, I have to make this choice or whatever. And it's always just... Well, it's an illusion, of course. It's just our, our labeling of something without saying that, you know, we don't have ultimate control, as you were saying, but we do, we do make choices. And we can choose to see ourselves as victims of some situation, just the damn New York Times and their puzzles or whatever, um, or we can choose to remember, oh, yeah, I want to practice. 
What does that mean in this situation? It's not always clear. Uh, it's one of the things that's easier if you're in a residential situation. And there's a bell, and then you put on your robes and you go to the, and everybody's sitting there, and so you want to do it too, or you feel like you should. Anyway, there's lots of ways in which we can feel like victims of something, and this world is difficult enough so that it provides lots of opportunities for that. But um, how do we appreciate? You mentioned self-compassion. Self-compassion is to care about ourselves and everything. And we can choose to do that, or we can choose to, you know, be cruel or victimize ourselves or somebody else. You know. So anyway, thank you for mentioning that. Thank you for re-mentioning it. I forgot about the victimhood part. You know, I, I think it's also okay to say, I don't want to make this choice, but I am going to make this choice. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the, 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 the pain of holding on. And, um, you know, then, then we let go. It's, it's, we don't, I, I don't want to give up. You know, I don't. I don't want to wake up, but <laughs> but but that's but that's the thing is you know when the bell rings we do make a choice to practice and um, that choice you know maybe over overrides other choices that we might make in that moment we don't we don't have to but but we we want to live in in a way that supports our awakening. You don't. You don't have to like it, though. We we always think that we have to like it, and that we have to want to. But you know, you can you can just you can blame the dough on, or you know, blame whoever <laughs> until you don't feel like blaming them anymore. You know, I think for me. One of the benefits of Zen practice has been actively separating my actions from my preferences <laughs> so that you know, I set up my life in a way, when this happens, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. My alarm goes off. I get up. I put on some pants. I walk into the Zendo and I bow. <laughs> and then I light some stuff and I sit. And 50 minutes later, again, automated my belt, my phone dings it's like oh okay next thing (laughs) and so like creating it's all these structures that i can just surrender to Mm -hmm. yeah and honestly i think it gets easier over time you may you may have noticed that some pieces of it get easier over time i think that um that's why we come together to practice and i think that that was one of the things that for many people including myself really suffered during the pandemic Mm -hmm. and uh so we can we can go back, but as we continue to bring an appropriate level of renunciation to our lives, it gets easier, you know. And then we and then we can do a little bit more without setting ourselves up to quit. Hmm. So looks like we have. Um, if anyone else would like to share anything. Lewis, welcome. 
for uh, sharing with you share. Uh, I was really struck by the idea of renunciation and like finding an appropriate level of renunciation. Seems like we're talking about like you're really renouncing your preferences so that you could pay more attention to the cries of the world, I think, mm -hmm. as you put it. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that or like how to. How does one find the like appropriate level of renunciation? I don't know if there is one right way, you know. Um, so, but I think it's a wonderful question, and I'm so glad that you asked it. I think it, it's a. I think it's a question that involves some experimentation and some experiencing. Um, you, we can, it's, it's, you, you kind of have to pay attention to, um, what your limits are and when you really start to feel uncomfortable and, um, we can do that in Zazen, you know, where if you hold a posture too long and it's, and it's a little out of balance, you really start to feel it, you know, your knee hurts or your back hurts or your ankle is completely asleep. And um, at that moment, you know, even though maybe we're not supposed to move, you move, you know, you just try to adjust it a little bit. Um, this something similar might happen with practice, you know, might you might set your intention on um, all kinds of things, you know, you might say, well, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to meditate for an hour. And you might find that, like, that just it just feels like too much. You know, you can, it may feel like, hey, I, you know, I, I'm missing some important things in my day. You may feel like, hey, you know what, I'm really getting, I'm, I'm really feeling antsy. And you can start to, but but you've set that intention, right? And so you can start to feel like, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me that, I, that I'm not doing this or I can't do this. But, um, and it's, it's not clear cut. So... You kind of just have to pay attention and, and maybe push your limit a little bit, but not much. And maybe over time, you know, you, you can kind of find your way back to, well, okay, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'll sit, you know, 20 minutes at home by myself or, or 30 minutes, you know. Um, and maybe, maybe you practice with that for a little while. One of the things that we tell people um, in Zazen instruction, which I'm sorry, we had nobody here to do today is that you know we have a rest position um can somebody demonstrate the rest position maybe maybe david can you demonstrate ruben can demonstrate it ruben's demonstrating it right now and like if you if you find that your posture is just really killing you um we we typically adopt this rest position where you pull one knee up and you just you know kind of grab your knee and you, it'll it'll soothe your back a little bit it'll soothe your knees and um, and we rest like that. And what we usually encourage people to do is hold that position longer than feels necessary. Mm. You know, so that you really, so that you really relax again and you really reset. Because if you if you don't, you're going to go back to the same painful posture. So so even even our practice on our cushions is about finding a way that feels centered and comfortable and sustainable. And 
that, that can take some time. For me, it took many, many years. Um, but, but, but it happens, and you'll, you'll notice it over time. You know, you'll notice, like, over time, like, oh, my ankle doesn't fall asleep anymore. That's, that's so great. But it's, it's something we have to kind of feel our way into. And, and so anything with renunciation and, and letting go is something that you have to feel your way into. If you find that you've let go too much and you bounce backwards, it's, you know, don't, don't beat yourself up for it. It's, it's okay. You'll, it's, a, it's a sign that maybe that thing was too much at that time. And, and just, um, you know, kindly help yourself find yourself back to the center. I think that's one of, that's, that is really one of the benefits of practicing with other people because you can talk about it. You know, you can talk with um, practice leaders here, or you can talk with other other members about, um, you know, I'm going through this. Have you, has this ever happened to you? What do you do? Um, but, you know, whether you whether you work with a teacher or whether you practice with a sangha, it does help to have people that you can talk about your practice with. And, and it helps them, too. Thank you. I, I, the... Uh demonstration wasn't on the camera, so uh, it looks like let's just bring up one leg and gently cradle it with your hands so it's supporting your back. And uh, nobody ever showed me this. I just saw other people doing it. Ah. (laughs) And you realized how comfortable it was. I was like, oh, that looks wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems like it's okay because they're doing it. It's, uh, I've heard it called the posture of royal ease. Wonderful. <laughs> so if that helps. I wanted to add one thing. Lewis, thank you for your question. Um, welcome. Thanks for coming in. But um, one thing about your question is that part of our practice, a big part of our practice in my opinion, is that we have questions come up. And the point of the question is not to find some answer that is going to solve everything and fix it, but to keep that question and keep holding it mm-hmm. gently. And, and the question and its responses change over time. But please uh, take care of your questions. All of these, all of these questions, you know, why, why do we practice? Should I hold on? Should I let go? Should I be out in the vast wide world? Or even, even you know, what is this? What is this that's happening right now? These are, these are the questions that we can entertain. Mm-hmm.